Okay. You ready? Yeah, let's do this. You are listening to the Disruptive Peacemakers Podcast, a podcast that asks the question, what is peace? What is a peacemaker? And how can peacemaking be disruptive? One that interrupts injustice, that disarms evil, and takes on the arduous and ongoing pursuit of racial reconciliation and racial justice. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. This is John and my wonderful co-host, Aaron. How you doing, Aaron? Hi, I'm doing well. I'm excited about today. We have an educator. Right? Yes. Oh, so why why are you excited about an educator coming on? Because I'm a teacher. That's yes. right. <laughs> That's right. Teacher. That's right. So, yes, I am super excited, super honored, and humbled. That well, John, my, at least I yes. play one on Zoom. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You play a teacher on Zoom. Yes, and we'll, we should actually ask our educator about that, about what it's like teaching during this season of COVID and teaching through Zoom. So we'll, we'll hopefully get into that as well. But today, um, I'm honored and humbled to have my dear, dear friend, Karen Farrar-Perkins, who I've known for mm, 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 years. <laughs> it's <been a> decade. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Eternally 29, you know? <laughs> so, but we've known each other for a long time. We've been good friends. We've been neighbors. We've worked together. Um, we watched our kids grow up together. <laughs> All of those good things. And so uh, Karen is an educator, uh, par excellence. She's just amazing. She's been a teacher and a principal and a headmistress, everything. She's done everything that you can do within the educational system. And we're just so excited to have her on. Karen, welcome to the Disruptive Peacemakers podcast. <laughs> welcome, <laughs> welcome. Make your process. Okay. That's an oxymoron, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, we're going to definitely get into that. So, Karen, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. So, um, I'll tell the very short story. Um, born and raised here in Southern California. And um, education, I, I, I'll say learning has always been important to me. And um, my mom did not. She finished high school. She did not have like a big dream for us, uh, but I was a person who always loved learning. And I actually, um, I started teaching when I was in fourth grade and I would um, sneak wow. into the cloakroom at lunchtime and everybody would go to lunch. And then I would come back into the classroom and I would teach all the empty desks. Oh my goodness. I didn't, I never heard this story. Yeah. So I did that for like three months until someone ratted me out and they're like, yeah, we never see her at lunchtime, but, um, I don't present as an introvert, but I think that was my introverted time, but I just love like learning new information and being able to give that information. So I've been practicing teaching since I was eight years old. Wow. Amazing. And, um, and I have ended up in junior high, high school, and college in those educational spaces. Uh, so, uh, but I have a degree in theater and theology. 
I started teaching oh, wow. in South Central Los Angeles at an all-black school and did that for a couple of years and really solidified to me like to move away from the theater piece to some formal education. And so uh, I have been blessed at that from that time to have taught from kindergarten up to college and even some kids that needed GED. So I've done principaling, starting schools. Uh, I, I just have had a varied um, blessed way of being able to do what I love. So uh, that's my educational piece. Personally, I have uh, two children. And um, or else if you talk to my children, I have six children. Uh, just <laughs> on, you know, um, it was very important to my former husband and myself that children would be given an opportunity to have important people in their lives. And so we took in uh, several young men as well as the two children that we adopted. So I have six children or I have two children. Uh, my two children, um, one is working on her master's in organizational site, and my son is doing his fifth year of teaching at a high school here in Southern California, and he just got engaged two weeks ago. Wow. So um, I'm not chomping at the bit for the wedding or the babies that come afterwards, you know, but if it comes, it comes. So That's amazing. Yay. <laughs> Nice. That's really cool. So, Karen, as you said, you you've taught in all different kinds of settings, and the, yes. and what I do know about you is you said that you taught at South Central High School that was all black or predominantly black. You've taught in multi ethnic spaces. You've taught in all white spaces. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about the differences in uh, in teaching in those different spaces? Right. So. The answer that I would have given probably about 20 or 30 years ago is that it really doesn't make any difference whatsoever. Children are children. And that was primarily like, you know, um, like you see color, but it really doesn't make a difference. But what I have come to understand and to realize is that children of color uh, be it at an all-white school or a, a, a primarily multi-ethnic school or a Black school, they need support. And they need to be praised for who they are as people of color. They need to be encouraged for that. They need to be told that they are capable and so that they are deserving of everything that education has to be, that ha it has. And um, that's not something that they need to fight for. And it's not something that, um, I'll tell you this, that there have been teachers of children of color that I have come across that have not necessarily always given their best. Um, I believe in teaching like you give 150, 900 billion percent and you keep doing it no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, one of my mentors um, said that no matter what a child comes with, you as the educator needs to make sure that you are in the place to help them learn. 
So wow. that means that you come to school early or you are at break with them. You do whatever. So thank you, Marva Collins, who was my mentor for that. But even before that, um, Annie Sullivan was a mentor of mine. Uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, because these were all women who just said, I am going to put myself in the place or put myself in a place so that these children will learn no matter what. And wow. I have a high buy-in with that. Mm-hmm. And I believe that um, children definitely need that. Yeah. So, so you were talking about um, that kids of color need support. How or yes. why did you come to that conclusion? Personally, I would say through my academic experience, and this would be elementary, junior high, high school or whatever, I did not receive encouragement from my teachers. Like they would say, I would hear later on, like, oh, she was at the top of the class. But I never heard that from my teachers. I never got that support. Um, What I would get from teachers sometimes, like say in science, oh, she needs to go sit in the back of the room or they need to do that. I'm only going to teach the white male. They wouldn't say that, but that's what would happen. Right. Uh, That happened when I went to college. Wow. And, um, and at the time, I don't, I did not have words mm-hmm. to do that. And I did not really even feel that. I just, I just knew it. I just wore it. Yeah. So now that I'm looking back in terms of educating and seeing the students that I've been with, I was like, what was it that I did not have? What could have propelled me more and my classmates? Um, my high school counselor told all of us, and I went to a very large high school here in in Pasadena, told the people that, um, and some of my best friends told us that we all needed to either like be secretaries or we needed to work in some like retail places and that we needed to go to the city college. Wow. And so when I, um, because my, Family, my uncle taught at a, a Christian college, really pushed for me to go there, pushed for my brother to go there. So when I graduated, like I graduated on Saturday and I went straight to the school on Monday to find wow. the counselor. And I wanted to show him like, wow, I graduated and um, from a four year college, double major. And so for him to see, like, like I said, I didn't have the words to say that, but I was right. so like, why wouldn't he tell, you know, there are 800 people in our class. Why did he tell 250 of us to go a certain route? Yeah, what was his response? He smiled. It's good to see you. Didn't really, you know, like, oh, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I want to sell you my diploma. I graduated. Like, I'm so excited. And um, wow. But I will tell you that his words worked on my classmates very well. I'm still in contact with a lot of these people that he pushed into going to, you know, the city college, which is not bad. Right. right. So if you tell somebody, oh, well, you know, go into retail, be a secretary, be this, be that, not go higher. Right. He what he did to my particular class. And I don't know all these other classes that he was involved with. Mm -hmm. 
A lot of damage. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. I actually, you know, thinking about what you were saying about um, that, that point where you realized that there were certain things that students of color or actually all students need. I think that what makes a really good teacher is when you look back into your life and you think about those, those empty spaces that you have inside that, you know, that if somebody actually filled your cup up, right. As you're, as you're growing up, if they filled it with those certain words of encouragement or those words of belief, then you know that those are the things that those kids need to hear, right? And then the learning comes. It's not necessarily, oh, what's the best pedagogy or, you know, what's the best curriculum? It's really about how do I make sure that I am filling up every single one of these kids' cups so that they believe that they can do anything, right? So regardless of whether or not you have a person like that that comes along and says, oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe you can be... Uh, just go to city college or maybe you don't need to go to college or right. Regardless of whether or not those people come into your life and they will, you'll have a full cup. And it sounds to me like you're one of those teachers that really um, thought about those things and made your students feel that they were worthy, right? That they were worthy. And I still have relationships with hundreds, literally of my students. I can't go anywhere in the San Gabriel Valley with Karen where somebody won't stop us and say, Hey, Miss Perkins. Hey, Miss Farrar. Yeah. Oh. And I, I gave myself a virtual birthday party last week and I had probably yeah. about 15 or 20 students that, you know, they're now in their thirties and forties uh, that like, Oh my goodness. Wow. We get to be with you. And I think, Okay. The little bit that I put in you was sustainable and enough for you to say, I'm going to keep this relationship Mm -hmm. because this person really cares and loves about me. He loves me. Um, And that to me is so powerful. Yeah. Karen, I know you also have done a lot of training um, of of other teachers. So what are some things that that you teach them to make sure that they're giving dignity uh, to their students? Um, first of all, I tell my teachers that they need to be learners and not just take what's in their textbooks. As... Uh-oh. <laughs> That's disruptive. That's so disruptive. So, so, for example, had a teacher a couple of weeks ago that told the students about the journey that Black people took and then decided to become slaves when oh. we got here to America. And so I thought, okay, I need to go back and look in your textbook and find out like what you, you know, and found out like, okay, the facts that you were told in the textbook when it talks about the journey that black people took to come to America and then they decided to be slaves (laughs) and you took that. Wow. You know, you are a person that is doing a lot of research And you're finding out those places. If I have a Native American child in my class, if I have an Asian child in my class, whatever, that you need to be well-versed and your head needs to explode. And the second thing that I think that is extremely important, especially um, when teaching children of color, 
is that not all your materials, not all your books that you read, not all the things when we go around and read your room, it needs to be full of people of color. It needs to be your materials need to do that. And so that you're not just teaching one narrative. So that's not the subversive way. Right. And that you just figure out those ways. Like when people come into your classroom, when students come into your classroom, that they're like, oh, and you just keep it moving and you keep things interesting and you keep finding out new pieces of information and putting that out there before children. They are so intelligent. And when people say, oh, kids don't see color. I'm like, yes, they do. (laughs) No, they do. Let's start in kindergarten. Let's start in preschool. Let's support these kids with their hair. Let's support kids with their eyes. Let's support them. How do we do that? Right. And I've seen too many teachers that have not done that with children of color, have not done that with gender pieces with children and just want to go like, just, you know, this is the way I want to go this straight and narrow way. And, and, and this is, you know, I hate that. I detest that. (laughs) Karen, you, you and Aaron and coffee, our mutual friend coffee are probably the three people that I personally know who, who take the approach in the classroom of teaching issues of justice. And, And part of what you're talking about right now is doing just that. Yes. Um, one of the things that, that Aaron, we were doing a training on how to talk to your kids about race. And and one of the things that Aaron put up on one of the slides was all teachers, uh, and I'm not a formal educator, but apparently you have to have a certain amount of words that you teach your kids throughout a year. And and the one of the slides, Aaron, that you put up was the words that you were teaching your kids, which was very different than the required words. Your words had justice. Your words had like all those different things. And Aaron, maybe you want to elaborate on that. And then Karen, you can comment after that. I think that would be really cool. Yeah. Yeah, So I agree with you 100%, Karen. So yeah, in in preschool, my, you know, you have vocabulary words. Mine were like justice, resist, (laughs) (laughs) you know, uh, uh, weak link networks. (laughs) <laughs> and my kids used to have to read those words every single day. And I had, you know, one student go up and point to the words. But I just feel that, you know, you can learn the word farm, fine, whatever. But to learn those super powerful, meaningful words, how much further does that take you in your growing and your understanding the world? Because you're right, students, children, see color from when they're very, very young. There's been research that says by the time they're like three months old, they already see the difference. And by the time they're in preschool, they can see like advantage for some and disadvantage to being something else. Right. And, um, you know, I, I also want to know how you navigate through those different types of schools. So, right, when you are teaching about justice, how is it doing that in Title I schools, in primarily white schools, in private schools, in um, very diverse schools, which I think there's not very many of those uh, nowadays? So good question. I think what I have found out is that 
my teaching vocabulary has stayed the same. Hmm. Um, if I talk about justice, justice looks the same. No matter if I'm at an exclusive school or if I'm at a Title I school, the consequences of the repercussions of the actions might look a little different. But if I talk to children that are that have quite a bit about what justice is, it's like a little light goes on in their head. Hmm. Oh, well, my parents have a Rolls Royce and they have this and they have that and have this. And then I show them pictures of like, where's the justice? I leave it to them to figure that out. On the other hand, if I teach and with some other little children and they see justice, they automatically know what injustice is. Hmm. They see it quite a bit. So we have those comfortable, uncomfortable Um, you know, conversations. We have those conversations. I think I was reading the book about Ruby Bridges and I was reading it to, so I have had two different experiences. So Mm. I was reading it to some children that have quite a bit. Mm. Mostly, 98% white, very affluent children. So I'm totally excited because I met Ruby Bridges and she's just like one of my heroes. So I'm reading like, this is our 50th anniversary of what this is. And I want to share this book with you. So I read the book and, and one of the children, a fourth grader says, I'm really glad I'm a white person. Wow. And I said, okay, so w- what do you mean by that? He goes, yeah, I wouldn't have wanted to go through what she did. I would have been on the other side. Mm-hmm. I was so shook that it was time for them to go to lunch. And I just stayed in my room because I didn't even know, like, is this like we've been teaching this kid like this is what they're coming up with that this wow. is what they can see is that wow I needed to be with those people who are shouting and yelling and get back and all good and not identify with our protagonist oh. so that mercy piece that justice piece then I went into like okay we, we I got to teach more justice right yeah. more honor more kindness because. This person is a leader in our class and he said it aloud to everyone in class and they're going to be following him. Right. When I've taught that, that book with other children and they see that and they go, wow, she persevered. Her parents right. did. No matter what was going on, then I'm going to, I can stand firm. Right. So just using that, that piece of literature in a very vital way to two different, very different economic groups, privileged groups, right? Um, had very different outcomes. Yeah. Over over time, how, with the with the privileged kid, how how did you unpack that for him and the class? So we did the um, sneeches. So we did the sneeches. We did like I would do all kinds of things with him in class or with students in particular that would allow them to see like we were in fourth grade. We were learning California history and learning in California history in fourth grade. You learn about the missions. You learn how gentle it was. You don't hear about so much the violence that happened to native peoples and their lands that were being stolen. You hear about this wonderful kind of idyllic type thing. 
So within that curriculum, I wanted to push these people. Okay. So instead of the Gabrielina people, which are in the Pasadena area, they're the Haha Magna people that lived here. San Gabriel Mission was built on such and such and such. Now you got to go take a field trip and see if you see, you know. So just very naturally within that curriculum piece, I wanted to bring forth some things for him as well as the other class for the other students just to see that there was another narrative that was there. And that was just as powerful as that textbook. Right. I don't know. Uh, that child is now in high school. I don't know if I was successful with him. Right. Yeah. And you won't be with all of them. Right. I won't be. I'm hoping that other students that were in that class, um, I've seen some actions that this student has done that has Mm -hmm. confirmed that it didn't permeate. Right. Right. Well, how unfortunate for him. Yeah, how unfortunate for him, because if he really does have strong leadership abilities, you will fail if you are lacking empathy and compassion for the people that you lead. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think that these are all very important lessons for children of all colors. Yes. Um, you know, earlier you also said that you know, you could be in all these different spaces and teaching is teaching, kids are kids. And I agree with you. However, the thing that's different for each um, type of situation isn't the kids, it's the parents. <laughs> it's right? the parents and it's the teacher. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So um, the parents you can't necessarily change their they are what they are, right? So it's the teacher. That's why I was like, okay, now teachers, let's, okay, we're going to look at Thanksgiving. We're going to sit down and look at Thanksgiving. What do you have in your class? What have you been taught that is incorrect? What What are you going to teach the next generation? Okay, and we're going to start from kindergarten all the way to sixth grade. We're going to figure this out. Okay, what kindergarten is going to teach that's going to be a lot more truthful than Sally Ann, you know, our little pilgrim people? Pocahontas. Pocahontas. <laughs> Miles Candish. You know, Priscilla, whatever her name is. We're going to get some other play, you know, views that have happened. The people right. that were stolen. Uh, we're going to talk to the Wapanoic people and find out what happened when they were able to help the Native American, I mean, help the pilgrims? What do the Wapanoag people have today? What's happening with them? Thanksgiving is this wonderful thing. We looked at, uh, took every book out of our library that had to do with Thanksgiving. Right. All the bulletin board information. And we sat there, it took us like three or four weeks to sit there and say, okay, yeah, we're taking this book out. We're taking this book in. Maybe we need to get this resource. Maybe we need to do that. That was wonderful. Now, we needed to do that for a lot of all of our other holidays, and our, um, especially our Christmas holiday <laughs> that we just finished. Right. But to look at those holidays and see that um, what we have, we've done a disservice. 
to our children. Right. Like not teaching them. Yeah. So we have to be intentional about what we do. So, so what, what are some of the responses that you get when you're teaching teachers about these things? Like when you said, Hey, let's look at all of our books that are in the library. Let's look at our bulletin board material. What, what's the right. response? So I had a couple of teachers that were, and they were teachers of color that were relieved like, Oh yeah, we're going to talk about this. I did have a little bit of resistance with one of our older white teachers that just like, we've always done it this way. I want to, you know, like, I want to have my kids with pilgrim hats on and a Native American hats that have the little, you know, the little feathers. And I go, that's not even what the uh, Wapanoic wore. Um, I want to do the teepee. That's not what they're not Wapanoic. <laughs> I want to do this. I want to. So that was already in her culture and her teaching kind of knapsack. And so the fact that um, we did have something that was different and that we were going to be more investigative, like, I like my culture. I like the way it is. I like what we've done. That was the hardest thing. I think until like week four, when the enthusiasm of the other teachers were saying, oh, I don't want to, I can't put that bulletin board in my classroom. Right. I can't show that movie in my classroom. And then it was like dawning on her. And then finally, I just, as the head of school, I had to say, you cannot do that. (laughs) Okay. You cannot do that. But what am I going to do? Okay. Let's, let's sit down and talk. Let's figure this out. But as the kindergarten teacher, you can't start the ball rolling that way. Right. Right. Can I do it? Yeah, that's good. So, yeah, that's good. Let's let's pivot. Let's pivot a bit. Um, okay. Talk a little bit about you, like your your personal journey, and um, we talk primarily about race on this podcast. And you might know a little bit okay. about that. Um, <laughs> I know that you're an anti racist uh, facilitator and trainer as well. Um, but first, like, what what what's been your racial journey, like your racial formation? What's been that journey like for you? Oh wow! So I just finished uh, talking for three hours with my college roommates, and we all came up with. Uh, before you even ask this question, we went to a primarily Christian college where there, I think there was like four black women and three of us. You mean primarily and white Christian college? White college. Okay. Did I say black? No, you just said primarily Christian yeah. college. No, primarily Christian white. Primarily white. <laughs> and we came away with this was not the place for us. That hmm. this educational place was really for white people and especially for white women. And none of the three of us were kind of attractive. None of the three of us had any dates. Or anything like that while we were there. And that we just did not fit physically what was there. And so what happened with all three of us is that we did we ended up not feeling good about who we were as black women. And so my own journey was that with my right white roommates, since I didn't feel good about myself, I'll go to my white roommates and I'll talk like them. 
I'll act like them. I actually had never shaved my legs before. I didn't even know anybody who did that, but I'll do that because of them, because I want to be like them. Right. I came home and my friends and family were like, why do you talk like a white girl? And so I spent the whole summer saying, I, I don't want to talk like a white girl. I'm going to be the radical black woman. So I went over to the other side because I didn't know who I was. <laughs> and so I was like the radical, like, yeah. And so nobody recognized me or wanted to have anything to do with me then. Wow. So I get married to this family that's kind of on this racial fast track with things. Right. But at that point, there were just really more servanthood. It really wasn't talking about who we are as people of color right. and taking care of ourselves or even understanding some of the damage that had been done to us um, or how we needed not to always you know, think that the white pastor or the white church was going in the right direction. Right. And this is where I met John. Yes. Yes, we did. <laughs> and, um, and we have talked about the fact that we didn't have the language yep. that we have today. Right. We didn't have the knowledge base. We knew that we needed to be in a place that the people needed us. It happened to be a black place. We're role models right. for these people. We are mentors. We're a family for these people. Yet and still, we were in a place where there were a lot of white benefactors, right. churches, people coming in, telling us how we needed to be, what we needed to be. And um, their dollars, unfortunately, sometimes would run the show. Right. And they wouldn't necessarily... I, I feel really bad that we did not give our children at that time what they needed to do to racially survive. Right. Because we were barely hanging on ourselves. Yeah. Right. And it isn't really until probably about personally until about maybe 15 or oh, 10 years ago that I started hanging out with some people that were like talking about this racial piece and not necessarily always being angry, right. but being in a place like this is what's happened to us, both black and white, right. Asian, Latino get as much knowledge as you can. And we're going to talk about this and be about this all the time. And we're going to be comfortable talking about these racial issues. I will tell you that I just did like a big sigh of relief because right. I've wanted to do that. And I've had black people or Asian people, like if I bring up race and I can be a comical person, I'll bring up race and put on a little blonde you know, really towel and, and everything like, whoo. Here I am. And they're like, oh, you're being racist. I'm like, ooh, black people. And like, so black people didn't know how to talk about it. Right. White people definitely, especially, unfortunately, people that were Christian. Right. Why do you think that is? Why especially Christian? Because what someone told me last week is that Christ has died for us. And that he didn't see color, so we shouldn't. And that we should really judge people by the content of their character. Sound familiar? Sounds familiar. And not by the color of their skin. I was like, that's one phrase. One phrase. Half a sentence. <laughs> Half a sentence. One phrase. And so 
that is a comfortable way of continuing on the path that we're on right now. Because talking about race puts you in the place of being uncomfortable. Right. Because for me to even deal with some of the racial issues that I've had to deal with, and even talking with my roommates, we spent a good hour and a half talking about where we came from and why we thought the way that we did. Yeah. You know, our big butts and big thighs were not welcome. Mm. Our nappy hair, our brown skin, and we took that in. Right. And I was like, you know what? That's internalized racial oppression. Right. I learned that a couple of years ago. That's right. <laughs> when I was in college, no. We internalized that so much that we didn't even have conversations with each other. Right. Here it is, 40 years later, my roommate and I are having a conversation hmm. about this. Right. And I'm dropping this information on them. So they don't even and know. They're like, they didn't even know. Right. They live in Arizona. <laughs> they didn't even know <laughs> about this. And so I bring it up and we're all like dissecting our lives. Yeah. And that's probably how our, why our conversation went so long. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It's amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. You know, and Karen, we're, we're, we've been friends forever. And so I know we've had these conversations about internalized racial inferiority and oppression. And, yeah. and I'm someone, I went to UC Berkeley, got a, an undergraduate degree in African-American studies. And we never talked about that. We talked about, I mean, in some ways, and, and my education was great. And so there's, I'm not ripping on that, but in a lot of ways, we focused more on either past political activism or what happened during slavery, who were the people who excelled or who were exceptional. In some ways, we took on that kind of same ideology that white folks right. have in terms of uh, exceptional exceptionalism. So you get a lot of historical pieces. Right, right. But not the personalization of what has happened to you right. or what has happened to whites. Right. What has happened to... Milo minorities. Right. What has happened to our native people? So we never do have that underlayer discussion. Yeah. We have it. We're like, we're the talented tenth. You know, <laughs> we graduated from college. We bought our homes. Our kids have gone to schools. We've done all these wonderful things. So we're here and we're not really, you know, it wasn't until I, 10 years ago, until I started thinking like, and hearing this other information. And frankly, I've been a sponge. Yeah. <laughs> I've had so much to learn and unlearn. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, it ends up being just these experiences were just chapters in a textbook or not even full chapters, but just little blurbs in a textbook. And that's where it stays. But the personalization of it, it's something that we all live with. And we all feel and we're all broken because of it, right? It's the air we breathe. It's the air we breathe. So until you just have that aha moment, was there an aha moment for you? Was there one specific thing that just made you think, okay, no, I need to really think and dig down deep about what's happening yeah. here? I would say that I've come to this point, like I'll be almost there and having those discussions hmm. and, um, Frankly, like even with John and with some other people, we would have these kind of intellectual kind of. Ooh, you know, yes, we did. All the time. 
And we would go to movies and we would come back and at John's house, we would have these big discussions. Hours upon hours. It was always very cerebral. So we would almost, but not break through. Yeah. And um, probably about nine years ago, I sat with, I think there was like eight of us there. And we were sitting around the table at my friend Coffee's house. And we had, I mean, I almost just sat there like in tears because we had Afro-Latinos, we had Asians, we had uh, Native Americans, we had Black, like we were all at this table and we were talking, we were talking and it was like personalized and it was like, okay, so wow. And that was like my aha moment. Like we're all created in the image of God and how wonderful and great. And we've had this thing happen to us now let's really like dig in and figure this out. And we don't have the answers to Mm -hmm. everything, but we are committed to being in relationship with each other. I don't know what that's going to look like 15 years from now, but we're committed to figuring this out and just being there with each other. Wow. And um, that moment Still, like I, I look at that moment, and I and I've seen a picture of that, and that happened in uh, January, and that happened after a core, uh, core which is rela- um, congregations organized for racial reconciliation. It happened at one of those times that we just came back. We were just so full, like we just want to keep talking about it. We want to, you know, we want to go deeper than this. Like okay, and then we happened to be around the table. We had some chipotle which Mark Charles, a friend of ours, who's a Navajo, he's like, that's his favorite thing. So he's there. And then Ricardo starts talking about his stuff. He's an Afro-Latino. And it's like, and someone decided that they were not going to be just a cerebral thing, but they were going to talk about what had happened to them and their family. Wow. And that was just like a door opener. And the rest of us like gushed out. So that meeting that was supposed to be like 45 minutes ended up, I know Coffee's kids were like ready to go to bed. So it's like three and a half hours later. (laughs) Right. They're like, mom, mom. She's like, hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. You know, we're like, okay, who's going to take some time with the kids? Because it was just so like earth shattering, jarring and wonderful. Yeah. And we even had a woman there. It sounds like it went from a meeting to a time of true fellowship. True fellowship. And it made me very thirsty for us having a different reality. Yeah. Especially, I I don't, I call myself a follower of Christ, not a Christian. Because I think in the, you know, totally different thing. I hear you. But as a follower of Christ, wow. Like I told someone from Genesis chapter one, all the way to Revelation, God has smiled on a variety of people. And who are we? Hmm. We're just required to do like three things. And that's in Micah 6, 8. We're to, you know, be just, love mercy and kind and be humble. That's the three things. What does God require you to do? Ta-da! And that's what I, I feel like that's the message that I teach all the time. Right, right. This is what we're required to do. Yeah. Not do social justice, do justice. Yeah. Love mercy and be humble. You know, 
we would have people that would be like, hey, well, you know, last week I went into the hood and I was helping those people. And we're like, no, what does God require you to be? Be humble. <laughs> okay. In fact, you're like, yes, and I help feed the people that live, you know, on Howard and Navarro. I'm like, I live on Howard and Navarro. Right. And I was, I was teaching these children, teaching them what? Wow. I, I think the thing that's fascinating, Karen, is so all of us have worked together um, doing the core type workshops, um, the anti-racism workshop, and and all three of us have led this section of internalized uh, oppression. And Karen, you when you were the first one that, that came along to help me to do the workshops and when you did internalized racial oppression, you did like a narrative with a yellow towel and just talking about hair and so what's fascinating, and I don't think you knew this, Aaron. I didn't know that. Yeah, so Aaron wasn't there. And so a year, no. <laughs> a, a year and a half later, uh, I recruited Aaron to come and to help teach that. And, and she did almost the same exact story where she brought a yellow towel. And, I, and, and for me, that was an aha moment about how this racialization, how racism impacts different people of color in different yeah. ways, but a lot of times the manifestations are the same. So so you felt marginalized because you wanted blonde hair. Aaron felt marginalized. So Karen, you felt marginalized because you wanted blonde straight hair. Aaron felt marginalized because she already had straight hair, uh, but she wanted blonde hair. And and I'd love for actually both of you to kind of talk about like just a little bit about that process of, because we, we want that intersection of gender to come into this conversation. And I think when we do, when we talk about racism, a lot of times the reconciliation, it's from a male perspective. It's from a male framing and a male point of view. But the two of you add so much uh, depth and nuance to it when you tell those kinds of stories. And so I loved for us to talk about that for a few minutes. So I lived in the same town that I live in right now. And both of y'all grew uh, up in the same town. Yes, uh, yes, I'm from your same town. Are you really? Girl, we I am. Know. Okay. Y'all went to rival high schools, though. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, we did. <laughs> Growing up, um, I lived in the Black part of town. But everything that we saw on TV, everything that we read, all the movies that we saw always had, like, these, you know, and I, I was alive. I'm older than you. So I was alive with the girls with the long blonde hair, blue eyes, who had bodies like this. She, she's gesturing as a very small, thin person. Small, thin person, which I have never, ever, 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 and John has known me for a long time, I have never fit that mold, okay? Never. There's nothing about me that fits that. And so as little girls of six, seven, and eight, we would go into our houses, and my cousin, as well as a friend of mine, we would come back, and we would get a yellow or a white towel and we would have it long and we would put it behind our ears and or put a headband on. And uh, I don't know if you've read the book, The Bluest Eye. Oh, my gosh. By Morrison. Yes. Percola Bree Love. And Percola had that same thing of wanting to be Shirley Temple. And she was the antithesis of that. And so the whole story, I read that as a sixth grader. I was very precocious. I read that and I was like, oh, wow, that, that was me. I've seen that like you are not going to compare 
to that. You're not going to look like that, no matter what you do in the mirror. This towel, which is wonderful and fun. And my mother would be like, get that towel off your head. I think she just saw it for a towel. But I don't, and she, you know, call my cousin up and be like, girl, did you see them girls out there? They got the towels on their head. And not even understand that, you know, we wanted to have long flowing hair and we would get the big towels, not the little towels. We would get the big towels so that we could have, we could flip it because we would see the white girls flipping their hair. I used to flip too. The flip. And you, you know, do the flip. That's no why you need that what. headband to keep it on. You had to have the head, but no matter what, this was not flipping. Right. This was getting greased and oiled and, you know, hot combed. But we had to do something like that. But the white girls, they were almost magic because they could go to bed with straight hair and wake up with it. The only way I was going to get straight hair is sitting at the stove with my mother with a hot comb for 30 minutes with me like, ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> you know? Right. So again, that confirms right. that thing. Like right, right. So Aaron, so Aaron, tell your part of this, tell your story or some of your story yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting to hear that. You had mentioned there was somebody else that right. did the towel thing. <laughs> but yeah, I I did mine in private because I was embarrassed. Because I was embarrassed of what I was, what I look like. And so after school, I would go home and I'd close my mom's door and I'd get that yellow towel and yeah. I would just try to create all kinds of hairstyles where you could not see any of my black hair. Yes. But, you know, and then I ended up hating myself even more because, right, I'm looking at myself in the mirror, trying to pretend that it's blonde hair and doing the flip, doing the flip. But I just look like an idiot with a stupid towel on my head. You just, right? Like, and then my skin was really brown. I was a very dark girl. And so I just look, I, I look nothing like those blonde hair, white skinned, blue eyed girls. I, I hated myself. I really did. And I wanted to be that blonde Cinderella. So, right. I'm growing up and all you see is that beautiful blonde Cinderella and that beautiful blonde um, Sleeping Beauty and Farrah Fawcett and um, not Kate Jackson. She wasn't pretty because she didn't have blonde hair. It was the other one, whatever her name was. But, you know, and, and even Snow White. Okay, yeah, she was pretty, but her skin was white. Right. She had black hair, but her skin was white. So, yeah, it's amazing yeah. to me that there's so many of us, right? Black, Asian. So, so Aaron, go go fast forward a few years when you're younger and then what did you do when you when you graduated from using the towel what did you do oh yeah there's always things like even right now as we sit here in this podcast and i can see this like right where i can see all of you and you can see me but i'm in the big screen and i hate looking at myself because i still have those even though i've thought through these things i still look and i'm like oh my god i want to get that eyelid surgery i really want to get that eyelid surgery I'd be so much cuter wow. if I had that eyelid surgery. Even though I know all that I know and I speak on it, there's still that deep-seated hate of myself because I'm not white. Right. Right? So, yeah, all the beauty products, all the whitening creams, all the 
sun in and ridiculous things that just make you look like just continue to look ridiculous because then you have red frizzy hair. So yeah, I did just sun in. I had the blonde streak. What? 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 <laughs> I had blonde streak. I had you did. Mine was red and oh, mine was orange. I looked ridiculous. And somebody told me like if you put lemons and and beets together and put it in your hair, yeah. you'll get lemon. You know, and I did the lemon on my face. Oh yeah, put the sun on your face, and you know, shave under your arms. Do this, do that. Let's change your voice. Let's talk a certain way. And no matter what, right? No. Um, my daughter, and she doesn't mind me telling the story because I've told it many times before. <laughs> when she was in kindergarten, and even all the knowledge that I have, and all the knowledge that her dad had. And really trying to, my daughter is a semi-sweet chocolate girl. Beautiful, beautiful girl. She's beautiful. So back to school night and the teacher had all the kids kind of uh, do a self-portrait. And so all the parents are getting the notebooks that their kids have made and all this stuff. And so it's just a father and I that are up there. It's out of the class of like 28 kids. And there's just two folders that are left. The folder that I'm looking at uh, and both of them were girls. Okay, And it wasn't until I opened it up and I was like, that's my daughter. She had white skin. She had made a self-portrait of herself with white skin, blue eyes, and long blonde hair. Wow. And I almost cried. And then I wanted to go kick her teacher's butt. <laughs> I said, you have to help me. Because... I am trying to promote. I know what damage this did to me. And we have been so proactive in giving and being around people of color. And we want, you know, our children to have that gracious, wonderful peace. My daughter has not bought this at five years old. And so you as the teacher, I, I am hoping that you'll take up this mantle to say, you know what? Shelby, you have beautiful chocolate skin. You look, your eyes aren't blue, they're brown. Let's find something that looks like you. Let's find a multicultural crayon that fits your color. That's beautiful. You wanting that? See, educators, come on now. And so when I said something to the educators, she was like, what? And I go, this is not my child. <laughs> and what? Do you see her like this? Oh, we just let the kids self-identify. I said, she's too young to self. She don't, she won't ever identify with this. Right. I don't want to, I don't want her to put this in her head. I want you to get different colors, construction paper. And when the children come up, you match the construction paper to their skin and say, okay, this is a piece that you need to have. You get that dark brown chocolate one, which I know because I helped buy the multicultural paper. I know that there's a piece of paper that matches her skin, her hair. I need you to be an advocate, an ally with me for my child. I don't want her to grow up as damaged as I am. I don't, and I see that she was five years old. This was kindergarten. Yeah, I, I have to admit that over the course of my te- my teaching, I've had many kids that when they draw themselves, they draw themselves white. 
even if they're not. And and even actually, thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, telling us that story also, because there was a time when I asked John about this, because yeah. in my class, my kindergarten, first grade class, I had a little black girl, and I used to talk all the time about how beautiful her brown skin was like her chocolate brown skin and I call and I used to tell the class how much I love chocolate and I love my little girl because she was chocolate and um but I I was always nervous so whenever I talk like that I would close the door so no adult could hear but I wanted that girl to know that I saw her color and when we'd look for things that matched the brownness of not only her skin but the other kid's skin I would show my skin and right, let's look at our brown skin together and let's see who's darker and let's see who's lighter. And yeah, I think that if we can just create spaces in our educational system where it's okay to talk about race, it's okay to say, I see the differences here and, um, and not try to squelch it down, right? Then how much better off will these kids be when they get older? They won't have to tiptoe around and pretend like, oh yeah, I don't see race. I don't see color. I don't, right. You look the same as, as John. Yeah. So thank you for, for that. No, that's good. Karen, um, we could definitely keep going on and on for sure. This is so, so good. Um, but I'm wondering if you were to recommend uh, a book for our listeners uh, especially on, uh, in particular on this topic, what book or books would you, um, would you recommend? Okay. Um, so I'm reading, um, cast by yes. um, Isabel Wilkerson. Powerful book, powerful book. I, I mean, I loved her book, the warmth of other sons, because it's told the story of my family on both sides. And so when this book of cast, like, Oh, wow. She just takes a very unique, uh, premise to that. Um, but I also, because I'm in a, a new situation and I'm finding it very difficult to talk to, um, hmm. the people that are here, I was like, so another book that, and I can't remember the author of it. It's like, so you want it. Um, so you want to, uh, talk about race Yes. and like, Oh, okay. So I think that's important. Um, Austin Channing Brown book. Yes. Pure fire. Um, which is, I think I've read it about four or five times. Uh, I had the privilege of working with her in Grand Rapids and just seeing her development and seeing like her very first sentence. And I've had discussions with people of non-color, like her very first sentence of her book says, white people are exhausting, especially those who want me to be white. And so just to unpack that piece, what does that mean? I've had white friends that are just like, "Um, you told me to read that book, but that very first sentence, I'm like, keep going, keep going. (laughs) You know, find out what my life has been like as a person of color in white situations and in white Christian situations. What has I want you to see this from a different lens. This is this is I I really identify with this book. So if you want to know me, read Austin's book. Wow, that's so good. That's so good. Okay. What what question? If you're talking to some leaders or just the people who are listening, what should our listeners? What should they be? What questions should they be asking themselves, especially during this moment? Yeah, one of the questions that I 
Okay, this is a Fellowship Monrovia question, but this is this is a Karen question from a long time ago. Is who are you doing life with? <laughs> okay, that's a very Fellowship Monrovia life. They were talking about spiritually. I'm talking about reality. Yes. Who is in your life? So, um, and John came to this. I had a housewarming party two years ago. Yes. And the people that I do life with, there were some Asians, there were Latinos, there was whites, there were blacks. These are the people that I'm doing life with. So my life is very full. If you're only doing life like this and you only have one set of eyes, then you're not going to get the perspectives. So who are you doing life with? If you have a dinner party and I see it on Facebook and every damn person is white. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. If you've never tagged greens or cornbread before, because I've had Lutefisk before and I've had some macaroni and cheese that is just not doing it. Okay. We need have to you had some, had some tempura before? Have you, what? What do your empanadas taste like? Your tamales taste like? Who are you doing life with? Then I will listen to what you have to say about race. Right. I, I think, Karen, that's so good. And and I, I would add, like I'd make a, put a comma at that. And then, and and also add, if you're not talking about race, like if you're doing life with people who are different than you and you never raise the issue of race or you never have the space to talk about who you really are and your ethnicity and your identity, then is that really a friendship? Yeah. Ooh, that's where I, why I had to leave the, my last employment that I had been involved with for almost 30 years. So every time we've brought up race, I have brought up race. My brother taught at the school. He would bring up race. Let's talk about this. This school is in the middle of the neighborhood. You got people of color all around you, but you can't talk about race at all. And I was very committed to being there, had been there. My cousin started going there in the 1960s. My brother started teaching there in the 80s. I started teaching there. My children went to school there. My brother's children went to school there. My, so have a high investment in this place. This past summer, as all the teachers were getting together and we had the head of school come and talk to us and the principal, not one of them made any remarks about what had happened. Wow. So I thought, okay, uh, we've been in a two hour meeting and they're talking about the pandemic and how horrible it is. And we all know it's horrible, but we also had another earth shattering pandemic pandemic. <laughs> And we're not talking about this at all. So I said, okay, I'm gonna give them another meeting and see what they are gonna say. We went to another meeting, never said a word about it. Didn't even talk about it. And I made a vow to myself that I'll be damned if I say something about it. I've been saying something about it for the last 30 years. Yeah. And people that I know that have been there didn't say anything. All God-fearing people didn't say anything. This was not important to them. And I came to the conclusion, like, I love this place dearly, but I cannot be here. Wow. I cannot 
be here and be in this space. The ironic thing is, is that a former student who is a DEI person is going to do um, consulting work with the school starting Monday. Wow. So I'm like, okay, so you had this free. You had my brother that even clamped down this summer and was talking to, you know, these people. And we don't want to deal with it. So Karen made the wise, unwise decision to step away. <laughs> Which they didn't understand right. when I just said, you know what? I I can't come back. These are the reasons why I can't come back. Right. Well, Karen, this has been amazing and our time has gone through quickly. You, I, no, no, no. Don't apologize. This is this is great. Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, this was great. Thank you so much for being with us and talking to us about your experiences and your ideas and your thoughts about fighting this good fight. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. And and thank you. I'm very honored that you guys even uh, wanted to hear what I have to say. <laughs> hey, really? yeah, no, the, no, you have a lot to say and a lot of great things to say. Karen, if somebody wanted to uh, reach out and talk with you or connect with you, um, how can they reach you? The best way to reach me is my personal email, which is my name. It's Karen with a Y, not an E. Okay, because I'm I'm self-identifying. Okay, so <laughs> Karen dot Farrar Perkins, which is one word, at me.com. Great. So people can get in contact with me there. And I I would love to continue to have a conversation. Yeah. And a relationship. Because that's what it really you need to have a relationship with somebody. That's so good. That's so good. Well, that's the end of this episode. Again, Karen, thank you so much. Uh, listeners, I we told you at the beginning that this was going to be an amazing uh, conversation. And Karen just shared so many rich things with us. Um, thank you for joining us. And we will see you the next time. Take care. All right. Bye.